Twas the episode before Christmas, and nothing did stir, except for a couple of film geeks on the film file. Yes, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello and welcome to the film file. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Meakin, who's already realising it's going to be a fun one to edit in post because <laughs> Lee has already flubbed, flubbed three twice. times so, on the intro. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you see, I did something I don't normally do. I had a pint of beer before we start recording. And I bumped into <laughs> this old this friend. Going in direction. <laughs> yeah, and I don't drink yeah, so, beer yeah. ever. But uh, this friend of mine who's a comic book artist has got his own bar. I was walking past, and I've not seen him for nigh on 15 years or so. I suddenly recognised each other, he invited me in, and we had a catch-up. And it was lovely to see him because we, uh, uh, we reminisced about our days working in comic shops. And our very first trip to New York was together, and he ended up getting a job at Marvel and DC. And the rest is history. Reminiscing about old times and remembering when you were all young. I had a moment this week of realising like how old I'm getting. As I said a couple of weeks ago, during my week off, I was going to see Ocean Colour Scene. And well, so yeah. I had that gig to go to this week. It was at the Octagon in Sheffield, which I've, I've only ever been to about two gigs in my whole lifetime at the Octagon. And it's not a bad venue. That's great. I played there. It was chosen as a substitute venue because the... O2 Academy is currently closed while it's uh, looking at structural issues, I believe. So they had to relocate to the Octagon. And yeah, it's, it, it was the great. It was a great size of room for the crowd that was in there. But it's one of them. I saw Ocean Colour Scene back in 1996. That's the last time that I saw them live. You when were just they were a at Nebworth. of a lad. Yeah, they were supporting Oasis at the Nebworth uh, weekend that they did. Back then, they were youthful. They were full of energy. They, you know, they were really good-looking guys. And then when, when some middle-aged men walk out on stage, <laughs> lead singer Simon Fowler with a pot belly and with glasses perched on the end of his nose. And I was thinking, oh, he's looking old. And then it was like, oh, that's because we're all in our 50s yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're all middle-aged now. But they were great. Good. They, st- they still played brilliantly, playing all of their older stuff and some of their more recent decade stuff finishing the whole lot of the routine with what is basically everyone's favorite era of them which was that um mosley shaw's era in the mid 90s and they just finished on such a high note it was a great gig it was like everyone in the gig there was a a handful of teenagers you most of them being dragged along by the parents but everyone was of my age range and i felt so in my element it was like oh this is what it feels like to be an aging rocker (laughs) it's a very odd experience seeing people grow old and i'm not in a and sometimes not in a terrible way but when you see movie stars who you've not seen on the on the screen for some time and you see them reappear i remember it happening i remember a huge debate with robert redford when he came back for the natural because he sort of dropped out of film for a little bit and most people commented about how he'd how he'd aged and you'd look at robert redford and he's he looks eternal but I remember that that being the biggest part of the story rather than the film at the time. And, mm. you know, people had said he'd, he'd sort of lost that boyishness, but then he must have been in his 40s. The thing is, he, he might have lost the boyishness, but he's he's aged really yeah, well. Yeah. He, he looks great. I think I think age suits him. Yes. He's one of those actors that, as he's got older, you've looked at him and gone, you're looking good, mate. You yeah. are looking really good. We're, we're quite in touch with our feelings on this show and we're not ashamed <laughs> to say when we think that a, a, a male actor is a good-looking guy and he's a good-looking guy. Yes, always has been. <laughs> and what screen presence, right back to pre-Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, let alone after that. 
But anyway, this is our our Christmas show. Yeah, well, kind of. Yeah. It's it, it's kind of it's it's the show which is going out just before Christmas, and then we're kind of going to have like a couple of weeks of a. We are. Oh, I'd like to say a rest, but it's not going to be a proper rest because we're gonna we're gonna fill the gap with like mini reviews. Yeah. Right, we're, pl- we're we're making plans for like a small little bonus episode where because Aquaman comes out next week, so we need to talk about Aquaman. Yeah, there's a lot riding on it for a start. Yes, and I'll be no doubt reviewing like various things that I see online and on streaming and dropping them into the show and anything that if we've both seen something by next weekend, we'll talk about that as well. Yeah, um, we might also throw in one additional deep dive for a festive season because uh, we're doing we're doing one this week, and I think. I think we've still got one on the back burner that we could do. Yes. Um, for next. We're going to try as best, aren't we? It'll be a more condensed show without the news. It'll be reviews without the news. Which, which is, is our, our new I've thing. I've been titling the videos. Yeah. Which I've been watching, Andy, and they're rather good. It's it's just easy to put together. And it's a, it's a nice way for other people to kind of engage with what we do review-wise. And then maybe, just maybe, they'll like what they see there and pop across and listen to the podcast. I mean, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't we're, you? What a bunch of lovely guys. Yeah. <laughs> and we we hope you have a. If this is the last time we see you before Christmas, then uh, we hope you have a lovely one. But yeah. we do have a show to do. We do. We're not sure how this is going to go because Lee's been out all day. And like he said, he's had a drink before the show. Yeah, just and the I've been Come working. <laughs> I'm not barfly. I've been working since half seven this morning. Oh, okay. And we're, we're, we're out of sorts as well because normally we record on a Sunday, but due to me working tomorrow night and Lee having engagement plans yeah. in the daytime, it meant that we've had to cobble together to go, right, let's just record it Saturday night. So we're not in our normal cycle. Yeah. So we, this could but go my in normal room. direction. Anything can happen in the next half hour or the half hour after that or the hour after that because this is how we go. We just talk. And what we're going to talk about next is our social challenge because every week we set a social challenge. We ask you to get involved, ask you a question about film, and we look forward to your responses. And the question last week was... As it's Christmas, what's more Christmas than a Christmas carol? And we asked, portrayals of Ebenezer Scrooge on the big or even the small screen. Who's your favourite? And why? You know, who tops the naughty list for the role of Ebenezer Scrooge? And who's your best bar humbug? We were kind of beaten to the punch on this one because we can't even blame them for stealing our question because we hadn't even posted it out at this point this week. It is getting close to Christmas, so other accounts are going to be doing it. And literally the day before I posted it out, you like Lee sent me a screenshot of someone else on Twitter had gone exactly the same question. It's like, oh, they beat us to the punch. But we still had some responses anyway, because you lovely listeners love to love to let us know your thoughts. Shall we start with the ones who've responded via Spotify this week? Yes. Over there, we've got our usual duo of Ben, who's Spidey Anonymous on Spotify. While I love Jim Carrey in the Bob Zemeckis animated feature, it has to go to Michael Caine for the Muppets Christmas Carol, doesn't it? I'm gonna. I'm, I'm expecting that to be the top of most people's lists. Yeah, because Stephen Young also posted via Spotify, I'm going to go with Michael Caine for obvious reasons that he played the part opposite the Muppets so well, and it was a musical too. So good to have love is gone, being restored back on the Disney Plus edition. Yes, yes it is, yeah. Definitely good to have that back. It's a great soundtrack. Over on the old Mastodon, RC at Wokadon. I don't know that the first one ever made the big screen, but Mr. Magoo... (laughs) Oh, I remember that. You know what? I, that's that's really triggered a memory because I now it's mentioned. I do remember it. There's a movie. There's a Shane Black movie, and I think it might be Lethal Weapon. Where yeah, it is. Yes. It's Lethal Weapon. Where Martin Riggs, Mel Gibson's character, is watching it in his in his trailer. Yep. And second is Michael Caine, and I don't know why. I mean, they just are, and that's fair enough. I mean, you know, Michael Caine just 
he was just a great Scrooge. Like Stephen had said, you know, playing against Muppets and managing to convey a perfect Scrooge. And still steal the screen from Muppets. That's that's a heck of a task. Over on X Twitter, Dennis, hashtag Obifilm who's at Dennis Obi. I'm not that familiar with the character, but I did watch The Muppets Christmas Carol, and Michael Caine is great. Caine is really convincing and is all over the place in a good sense. Yeah, absolutely. Andrew Dice, who's at Angry Digit, Alistair Sim and Michael Caine, although that's really the whole film, but it is one of Caine's best performances. I mean, Kane just comes up from... I think everyone's got love for that film. Yeah. The joy of watching Muppets. Muppets, we, we've said this before on the show, that you could have any film redone by the Muppets and it would instantly become a classic. Do Pulp Fiction with the Muppets. <laughs> do, <laughs> you know, I would love to see it. It'd be amazing. The, the Muppets can do everything and it automatically lifts every film. So Michael Caine being in what is a perfect Christmas carol. We spoke about it last year when we did our rundown of our favourite Christmas carol adaptations. And The Muppets is one that pretty much everyone loves. Over on the old Facebook, Patricia Meakin, definitely Alistair Sim. The original and more more Dickens than most. Brilliant Scrooge. And Helen Blair, Michael Caine for me, just because Muppets is my favourite Christmas film. Jane Smart, Michael Caine, again. How solemnly and serious he played the role in contrast to The Muppets somehow just works perfectly. Love this version so much. Yeah. Owen Cooper said, I feel like for me, Scrooge is like your favourite Bond and it's usually the one that you grew up watching. Totally agree. So mine is Jim Carrey's. But I also think Will Ferrell's take in Spirited was completely different and he likes that too. Could be a controversial one, but um, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. I I didn't mind Spirited. I know I had a lot more love for it than Lee. Yeah, I didn't at all. Will Ferrell was perfectly fine in the role. Uh, Lindsay Story, the main one to me, George C. Scott. Love that version, Ooh, and it's the yeah, one I grew right. up watching. And um, the want and ignorance bit terrified me. But my all-time favourite is Bill Murray and Scrooged. I'm glad somebody mentioned it. Someone had to, and Lindsay. Of course, you're going to mention it. Love this one. My ultimate Christmas go-to film, in fact. I've already watched it four times already this year. And then she said, Andy, if you slate Scrooged, it's war, mate. I reassured her on it's Facebook. It's not going to happen. There's no wrong with Scrooge. I love Scrooge. I remember when it came out at the cinema and like watching it and just being blown away by it and just thinking this is charmingly great it had me off the offset when we saw a clip of lee majors saving santa that's all that i needed <laughs> <laughs> i was in with that film at that point it was like lee majors way scrooge is one that i go back to quite frequently and it is despite the fact that i'm not a lover of christmas films as we've said many times over the show that's one that i'll happily stick on at any point and still love andy kennedy animated but he loves the jim carrey version The movie is incredibly close to the book. And because of that, every time he reads the book, he hears it as Jim Carrey's Scrooge. Yeah, I can get that. It is a closer adaptation to the book. It is very faithful to the book. I'm not a huge lover of the animated version, more because the animation style just grates on me. That Robert Zemeckis mocap animation style doesn't gel with me enough. But yeah, I think the performance of Scrooge in it is the closest that you'll get. To the book well i'm gonna go with the alistair sim version because i think uh it, it's probably forgotten by a lot of the newer film fans but i do think the alistair sim version i, I like patrick stewart not particularly a great film but i thought patrick yes. stewart was was very very good but alistair sim is 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 the one i've, I've got a lot of love for scrooge I, I was never a big fan of the albert finney version the musical mm. uh, leaves me leaves me cold i am a bit of a bar humbug when it comes to that one but uh, like everyone else, so much love for the Muppets Christmas Carol. I think it's yeah, it's our go-to Christmas film. 
and yeah. uh, uh, it, it's deeply I, loved in it this house. It holds up well as well. Yeah. Even it, though it, it was a modern it, take, it still feels modern today. Yes. Because I know that you can look at the the traditional Christmas carols and go, well, because of the time period that it's set in, it will hold up through the years. But whenever you do a modern take of something, it runs the risk of feeling dated by the decade that it's set yeah, in. Yeah. But that doesn't. That stays quite relevant and quite perfect. And I think that's probably a testament to how adaptable A Christmas Carol as a story actually is to any era. That no matter when you set it, it's going to work because it's just a perfect story. I was going to throw in my love for Patrick Stewart in that that 1999 TV movie. Like you say, it's not a brilliant film, but his performance is great. But, you know, bearing in mind that this is something that he refined with his uh, performances of it on stage, which he does solo readings and solo performances of A Christmas Carol. And so he got that character nailed. And, you know, if you if you want the best bar humbug, Patrick Stewart's bar humbug. Humbug is perfect in that. I love Patrick Stewart's voice. I could listen to him read the shopping list. He is marvellous. Well, someone arrange that for me and I'll be really happy. I want him to read my shopping list out to me. Uh, But yeah, my my vote is for Patrick Stewart for the best portrayal of Scrooge, even if it's not the best adaptation of A Christmas Carol. So Andy said it, and as did Lindsay's story which is the go-to films, the films that you always go to at Christmas. And you know what? I'm going to take any kind of favourite festive view in, something that you'll always go to. It doesn't have to be a movie. It might be something like, hey, The Snowman, or a more common wise Christmas special. If it's your festive go-to, we want to know. Uh, let us know, and we'll probably get back to you probably after Christmas. Andy, how can people get in touch? You can get in touch with us on social media channels. Just look for Film File UK. There we are. And you'll be able to respond to our question on there. Or you can email us directly, podcast at filmfile.uk. Or if you're on that there, Spotify, the details will be in the description of the show. And that takes us very nicely into this week's show. What have we got for you on the Film File, our Christmas edition? Well, we've been doing this for the last few weeks our festive deep dive and this week it is a christmas classic and one of my go-tos i'll be honest and that is gremlins andy and i have both seen godzilla minus one in our reviews and andy's got even more reviews for you which include three musketeers milady which i've been so looking forward to and chicken run dawn of the nuggets that landed on netflix this week but before any of that here's the news and here's the festive box office So Wonka opened in the UK a week prior to its US release. So let's see if Wonka has hit the sweet spot. Over in the US this weekend, Wonka took the top spot, taking 39 million. Hunger Games drops into second, taking 5.8 million this weekend. The Boy and the Heron is in third place with 5.5 million. Godzilla minus one takes another 5 million and Trolls band together on 3.9 million. Here in the UK... Wonka again holds the top spot for the second week, another 6.3 million added to his total, 18 million so far it's taken in the UK, fantastic result. Godzilla Minus One is in second place with 816,000, Hunger Games Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes 612,000 to take third place, Wish is in fourth place with another 587,000 and Napoleon is in fifth place with 499,000. That's the weekend before Christmas, next weekend is Christmas weekend and that's when well, that's when anything can happen, really. Now, one thing that is happening next weekend is Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom comes out. Now, the last Aquaman film blew the box office apart 
on the Christmas weekend. This one is tracking quite poorly. Is it one of those films that's become a little bit tainted? Even if you're not a, a regular moviegoer, and even if you aren't listening to podcasts like this one or reading it up on the news, I think there's always some kind of, it's almost like a bit of a zeitgeist. When you know that a film has had production difficulties, it somehow feeds into the ether. And I, I think this is what's mm. happened with this particular Aquaman film, because there have been numerous cuts of it, various screenings, re-edits galore, right up to the 11th hour from what we've been led to believe. And I think it, it's it's like blood in the water sometimes that you start to think this might be a film that's a little bit doomed. I, and I yeah. do think audience pick up on that. It's tracking similar to what The Flash did and the Marvels. Oh, wow. There's a lack of buzz around the film. Now, when the SAG-AFTRA strike stopped, we were saying that we'd expect to start seeing like red carpet appearances, interviews, etc. But there seems to have been nothing out there for Aquaman. There's no promotional tour going on. And it feels like like Warner's DC are basically just putting this out to die. I think they've lost all confidence in it and just don't want to waste any money on like undue marketing. And so they're just leaving it to just like, we're going to dump it. It's done because this part of the DC is done now because it's moving on to James Gunn's DCU in two years time. It just feels that there's nothing out there. And the only things that's out there about it are all the negative things. Exactly what impacted on Marvels, et cetera, et cetera that the only press and publicity is the negative gossip. Yeah, it just feels that they've just given up hope on it. They've seen how poorly superhero films in general have been performing towards the back end of this year and just thought, let's just cut our losses and leave it. And almost wait for James Gunn to come along and reinvent the DCU, I think. That's how it feels now with this. And, and to some extent, it, it doesn't help when Jason Momoa all but confirms that he's done playing Arthur Curry. It's in, it, in fact, the quote is, it's not looking too good. Will we see Momoa again in the DC universe? Probably not as Aquaman. There is hope that he might be getting cast as Lobo, but that's just fan speculation and fan hopes more than anything else at this point in time. We don't know. Let's move away from getting depressed about the state of superhero movies. Okay. Let's jump into... We're into awards season, so now we're starting to get the ideas of what things are going to be looking towards the big scores at the various awards. And the first one's out the gate this week for the nominations with the Golden Globes. Now, we're not going to go into the full list of the Golden Globes nominations because we'd be here all day because the Globes <laughs> cover a lot. But I'm going to pick up, pick out the highlights, the, the nominations for the 81st Annual Golden Globes were announced this week. And on the film front, Barbie is on the top, 10 nominations. It's the second most nominated film in the Globe's history behind only Cabaret. And it was followed by Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which has eight nominations. Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon and Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things both tie for third place with seven nominations each. On the TV front, the final season of Succession dominated with nine nominations which is a new record for TV series. It has a nomination in every category it was eligible for. Only Murders in the Building and The Burr got five nominations each. And The Last of Us, Jury Duty and The Diplomat also scored multiple nominations. I'd love The Burr to get a few wins out of this. But we'll go into more detail of the Globes when they're actually run and when we get the winners so we can actually talk about who's won. It, I think it was a dead cert that Barbie and Oppenheimer were going to be the most nominations for on the film side because they have been the films of the year haven't they 
One of the most hotly anticipated films for Andy and I is Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. So some story details have been revealed, including when the action is set or what we can expect from Noah and the villainous Proximus Caesar. War for the Planet of the Apes ended with the death of Caesar and it seemed like the prequel trilogy was actually a self-contained new take on the series. But instead of picking up with Caesar's son, it's been confirmed by Empire Online. The franchise is jumped far into the future. In fact, 300 years further into the future. And the apes together strong ideal has now largely been lost. However, Noah appears to live by that creed. And I'm looking forward to this. And as I said, you and I are huge Planet of the Apes fans. And we've talked about it here on the show. Uh, and it has gone in a direction that... I- don't think we sort of anticipated yeah 300 years jump is a huge jump so uh, you know we're basically jumping into new territory i know the um, director wes ball has kind of suggested that this is the start of a new trilogy that each trilogy will be a different chapter that can stand independently of the other films but will be linked to the other films and he said that he's trying to see where it fits in with the whole timeline it kind of sounds like he wants it to eventually link up with the original planet of the apes films he's kind of working towards that kind of theme and that kind of pattern that these can all be considered as part of the whole apes franchise except for tim burton's version which is completely separate (laughs) uh we're, we're, we're kind of forgetting that that one exists so i'm very interested to see a what this film looks like how it plays what the ape community is like now that it's kind of dominant on earth and b if it is going to be a trilogy where this is going to go And is it going to do like what the last trilogy did of being one of those rare occasions where each film gets progressively better, which is very rare for a trilogy that as it goes along, it gets better and better and becomes one huge, marvellous story. It's a good idea. I absolutely love the Apes franchise. I love all the old Apes films. I love the new Apes films. And I think it's something that we can constantly, constantly redesign and redevelop for a new era. Andy, it's it's been a good year this year for successful video game adaptations well the last of us anyway and it's now and it now seems that a24 have confirmed that they are going to be producing the death stranding movie now the game came out to a a flurry of great reviews even though i've not played it and and i thought it looked great but there was something about it that, that, Mm. that didn't attract me but we do like a24 And it's even been confirmed by the game's creator that it's in the works. This is one that's been speculated and rumoured for a while. And I've not played the game either. I do intend to play it because I've heard that the story in it is really good. Isn't it a no-brainer that Norman Reedus has to be cast in a film adaptation? He was the character model. And I can't see him turning it down. It's an interesting concept. The story of of the game is a very interesting background setting. Let's see. I'm always excited when I see things adapt. Even if I've not played the game, but I've heard good buzz about it, I'm always excited to see whether it can prove that video games are a proper art form. And that's the thing. Loads of people are dismissive about video games, don't think consider them story-based art. But they are these days. They are immersive art forms. Speaking about art forms and speaking about A24, Dwayne Johnson is going to team up with Uncut Gems co-director Benny Safdie for The Smashing Machine for A24. Uh, Safdie uh, has written and directed it as his first solo directorial outing and has been developing it alongside Johnson. It's planned to be a major dramatic role for the actor. We know that Johnson is generally known for either A, wrestling or over-the-top action fests. 
But this is something that he wants to add a bit more meat to his bones and showcase that he can do some more acting talents. He kind of did at the early part of his film career. He played a few more grounded roles. It's only in recent years that he's become this big muscle on screen and just full of charisma kind of character. In this film, he's going to play real-life mixed martial arts fighter Mark Kerr, who was a two-time UFC heavyweight tournament champion. Kerr's story has previously been shown in a 2002 HBO documentary which was called The Smashing Machine, which followed his rise through the fighting world with his no-holds-barred approach and its addiction to painkillers that led to an overdose. A24's Noah Sacco said in a statement, Dwayne and Benny are singular talents. Their shared vision for Mark's inspiring story is electrifying. We're deeply honoured to have their trust as collaborators in bringing this incredibly special project to life. There seems to be a return to this kind of film. I mean, we've got we've got A24's Iron Claw coming up soon. Oh, that's with... Um... Zach Efron and Jeremy Allen White. That's right. So it looks like A24 are delving into this sports, real-life drama biopics a bit at the moment with some of their projects. And are we going to see a wave of wrestling films following in the wake of it? Another one that we've had our eyes out for any news on for quite some time. Remember when 2020's Invisible Man came out and then we were told, oh, there's going to be a Wolfman film? Yeah, it was going to star Ryan Gosling, but I'm guessing he's, he's changed his mind. Yes. Latest update on this. We finally had an update because this kind of just dropped off the radar. Completely. Went really quiet, didn't it? There was a, another director uh, involved. And I think we've had a change of director as well, haven't we? Lee Wannell was originally attached to the film several years ago, but he, ex- he exited round about the time when Gosling and his blue Valentine helmet, Derek Sainfrance, came on board. That was like three years ago. But now we've got the project is back on Lee Wannell's doorstep for directing. And Christopher Rabbit, who is in Poor Things and Possessor, is going to replace Ryan Gosling as the star in the new take of The Wolfman for Blumhouse and Universal Pictures. Specifics of the story are under wraps. We don't know what kind of approach it's going to be doing. If Wannell takes the same approach as he did with Invisible Man, it won't be a direct adaptation of the original material but it'll be something modern set and inspired by the themes of more than anything else. They've already set the release date of October the 25th, 2024, which means that it's fast-tracked to go into production ASAP. Let's keep our fingers crossed. The loss of Ryan Gosling will not damage the film. Terry Gilliam has revealed that he wants Johnny Depp to play Satan in his new film, Carnival at the End of Days. It's good to have Terry Gilliam back. Yeah, I mean, he's, he, he can be a controversial element when it comes to talking about various aspects of films. And he's very, very much set in his ways. But he's such a creative genius. Even if his films don't sell to mass audiences, he always delivers something interesting. Uh, the film itself is said to be at an early stage, but the director has given us films such as Time Bandits, 12 Monkeys and Brazil indicates that he's confident that this one's going to happen. I mean, he's got a history of having films that he's confident are going to happen and then things go wrong. But he's revealed this news whilst in attendance at the Red Sea Film Festival last week for retro screenings of the documentaries Lost in La Mancha and He Dreams of Giants, which documents his attempts to make The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. He said his new project is a simple tale of God wiping out humanity for effing up his beautiful garden earth. There's only one character who's trying to save humanity, and that's Satan. Because without humanity, he's lost his job and he's an eternal character. And so to live without a job is terrible. So he finds some young people and he tries to convince God that these young people are the new Adam and Eve. God still gets to wipe out humanity. It's a comedy, allegedly. <laughs> it's Terry Gilliam. 
it could go in any direction. <laughs> Let's keep our fingers crossed that this actually comes to fruition. Otherwise, we'll be waiting another 10 years and then we'll got get a documentary on how he never got to make this film because that's the Terry Gilliam way these days. <laughs> I mean, talking of projects that Terry Gilliam never got made, he was to helm a Good Omens feature film. And we saw that eventually end up on Amazon. We recently yeah. had the second season. Well, production has now begun on season three. I'm a huge fan of the book. Wasn't 100% sold on the series. Uh, I liked it rather than loved it, but I'll mm -hmm. stick with it. So looking forward to seeing it no matter what. And I think just the pairing of Michael Sheen and David Tennant alone is worth the yeah. price of admission. The chemistry makes it. I mean, season one, I have a lot of love for. Season two, you could feel the absence of Pratchett. Yeah, absolutely. And it was more um, Neil Gaiman. And I, I, I love Neil Gaiman. Don't get me wrong. I love what Neil Gaiman does, but it didn't feel like good omens. But I'm interested to see how he develops it further now that it's become more his own project. Horror sequels. Smile 2 has gone into production and Naomi okay. Scott, who is in Charlie's Angels and Aladdin, has been set to star in the current, it's currently untitled sequel to Smile. It, is it going to be called Keep Smiling or More Smiles or maybe Chuckles? Yeah. Who knows? Don't look down, just smile. The original film was quite a surprise hit for Paramount, who originally were going to just release it straight on Paramount Plus but then decided to release it theatrically. And wasn't that the best decision they ever made? Because their marketing campaign leading up to it made sure that that was going to be a film that everyone had to see. I mean, we covered it on the show when they were doing all the marketing for it. It was just the perfect marketing campaign, the viral marketing of having people smiling at sporting events in the background and things like that. Perfect. The film itself was okay. It wasn't anything new. But it was enough to draw the audience in and it delivered enough frights and scares. Yeah, it was it was possible. It cost 17 million to make. It made 217 million. So, of course, we're getting a sequel. Parker Finn wrote the script for the follow up and Parker Finn is going to direct. Plot details for the sequel are under wraps. Paramount has set October the 18th next year as the re release date for the movie. So next October is starting to look more and more stacked with um, horror outings because that's... Uh, two that so far that we've spoken of which leads us nicely into the third horror film that is coming out for october next year well just before october but no doubt it'll do the most of business in october saw 11 has been put into production that should for me that should say saw 11 people nothing <laughs> a graphic that was posted on lionsgate's official instagram account teased september the 27th 2024 release date for saw 11 with the tagline, the game continues. We don't know any details of when it's going to be set because Saw X or Saw 10 was set directly after the first Saw. Is this going to be a sequel to that and so set before the second film? Is it going to be set between the second and third film? Or are they going to just jump ahead in time and bring it back to where the franchise left off with Jigsaw? We don't know at this point in time. I, I enjoyed the revival of Saw last, the, earlier this year. I thought it was a really good sequel to the first film. It made up for how lacklustre the rest of the franchise got pretty suddenly after that first film. And it felt like a proper sequel. I'm hoping they can tap into that again and make it feel that it deserves to be on screen rather than it just becoming torture porn, torture porn, torture porn. And I know there's some people out there who hate the phrase torture porn being used as in a dismissive way. But let's be honest, most of the Saw franchise ended up just being all about the deaths and you didn't yeah. care about any of the characters. What Saw X did is it made me care, and that was the important bit. They need to tap into that human element. They made me care for the jigsaw killer, and that is impressive. When they can make you care for someone who's supposed to be a villain, that's impressive storytelling. That's why it worked. 
I'm hoping they follow up the success and make it worthwhile. And I'm hoping it just doesn't just end up being churning it out just for the sake of making money. Andy, do you know what we've not done? We've not visited Pinch of Salt Corner. Oh, what are we salting this week? Well, we know in the next week that What If Season 2 will return. Rumour has it that Marvel are developing an animated TV series featuring the Eternals, or are they uh, developing an animated TV series featuring the Inhumans? Take it with a pinch of salt. Mm. I've seen various scattershot ideas of Marvel's multiple projects that they may or may not be working on. But at this point in time, I, I think they're just scrambling. I'm wondering how much of this is actually just like giant freaking robots kind of speculation, which... Mm. They just talk nonsense. But yeah, there's a load out there. I'm wondering how much are coming from those scooper sites and how many are getting put out as feelers by Marvel and Disney themselves just to see what the public reaction is. Because public reaction to a Black Panther Wakanda animated series has been very positive. So it might just be that they're just saying, okay, we need things to get good again. We need people to be in, ready for something. Yeah. Let's see what people like. I'll keep my eyes out and uh, we'll keep our minds open because we want to see a return to the high point of Marvel, but we don't want to see oversaturation again. And that's the only thing that worries me. And speaking of oversaturation, Zack Snyder's everywhere at the moment, isn't he? So it's only a week until Rebel Moon lands on Netflix. We know it's had a very sparse cinema release. Words not being good on this Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai, Battle Beyond the Stars, Gladiator, uh, once was a Star Wars film. Andy and I are not going to slate it because it's Zack Snyder. What we're hoping for is a great piece of space opera, but word's not been good. No, it's it's not been good at all. The initial reviews came out because it's got a very limited cinema release. Initial reviews came out on Rotten Tomatoes and it scored 9%, which means that only no. 9% of those critics liked the film to a 3 out of 5 or better. It's gone up to about 23 24% at the moment, so it's still not a huge score. There's some critics who are enjoying it, but even the positive reviewing critics are only kind of giving it three out of five, which is a middling score. It's an all right score, but I've seen comments in a few of their reviews that have suggested that it's a bit of everything getting thrown at the wall. You don't really care enough for it, but it does set up what the second part will bring a lot better. They're kind of reviewing it as like a, as a tease for what to expect with the next part. It's okay. We'll find out ourselves. I mean, because we've been on and off excited about this yeah. over time. Because we are interested in the concept and we don't dislike Zack Snyder. We want him to showcase what he can actually do because he's clearly got a good vision. The curious thing on this is that the version that's coming next week is the cut down version. When initially it looked like they were going to drop both of them at the same time, we're getting forced the cut down version before they release the uncut version later down the line. Why not just give us the full version? So, especially since oh, Zack's saying that that's the one that will make more sense. Well, just give us the one that makes more sense. People on Netflix will watch a film on Netflix that is four hours long because they'll binge watch stuff or they can watch it in chunks. It's not like you're releasing it at the cinema. At the same time, Zach has been obviously out promoting it and chatting about it. And he's also revealed that a Snyder Cut version of Sucker Punch is in the works. I'd seen a director's cut version of Sucker Punch. And I remember mentioning this when we, we deep dived it. Well, it's not that version. This is an actual Snyder Cut style, similar to Zack Snyder's Justice League, where he wants to go back and reshoot some scenes and add in some things that didn't even get filmed that he had within his storyboard ideas. He said, I'm working with Warner Brothers to try to find a window to go back in. Even though he did an extended version, it's not the fully realised movie. He wants to reshoot the final scenes 
I think it's good if I can get those guys, Emily Browning and Abby Cornish and the crew back in. Some reshoots would be amazing. We, we know that Warner's gave him around 70 million to edit footage for his new Justice League version. He won't get that kind of money again for a Sucker Punch Redux, but he, he'll be happy to just get something to be able to do one or two scenes. And whether you like his Zack Snyder's Justice League or not, you have to admit that some of those shots that he added in, that he basically filmed on an iPhone in his back garden, looked quite good because he knows how to make things look good and he knows how to use effects. He makes things visual. So I, I think he could get away with a low budget to make these additions. Will it make the film any better? I don't know. We covered this when we did the deep dive that this is my most watched hated movie that I keep convincing myself to go back to, to rewatch, convinced that I'll find something good in it. If he does this Snyderverse cut version, I'm going to end up watching it again, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, you are. It's, has there been, yeah, I'm, I'm answering the question as I'm asking the question, has there been a Zack Snyder film that hasn't had an extended or director's cut? Man of Steel didn't, did it? And 300, I think, that that was self-contained. Yeah, but everything else, everything else since then has kind of got the Snyder cuts, more because his films kind of got edited out of his hands or he got forced to make cuts to trim things down after then. Up until that point, he was basically given a lot of creative freedom. We'll see. So let's move on to some quick roundup news. So section 31, Paramount has reported that they're going to start production on 20, January the 29th, 2024 in Toronto for Star Trek section 31, which this will see Michelle Yeoh leading the cast of the film, reprising her role of Emperor Philippa Giorgio from Star Trek Discovery. Uh, shooting will reportedly run throughout March. George Clooney and Adam Sandler are set to team up in an untitled Netflix film from writer-director Noah Baumbach, who gave us Marriage Story and The Squid and the Whale, uh, which is said to be a funny and emotional coming-of-age film about adults. Um, it marks the first time that both those stars have worked together. Adam Sandler in an acting role with Noah Baumbach directing. I'm there. Batman Part 2. Barry Keegan has addressed rumours of his potential appearance as the Joker in Matt Reeves' Batman Part 2. He had a brief cameo towards the end of the first film. He's said... In his words, I can't really say anything about it. It would be exciting, wouldn't it, to see the Joker come to life again. My smile says it all, you know what I mean. So that kind of hints that he might have some presence, but maybe not be a major presence. I, I like the idea of building the Joker in the background. Yeah, I don't want to see the Joker yet. I'd like to wait on. If there's going to be a third Batman film, that's when I want to see the Joker. Yeah. Build up the bit more of the rogues gallery first. Chucky, John Waters, legendary filmmaker that he is, is going to play the creator of the Chucky doll, the good guy doll, in the next season of the Chucky TV series. That's great casting. It's marvellous casting. He's just got that creepy kind of aesthetic to him that would fit being the creator of such a sinister doll. Amy Winehouse's biopic Back to Black is set to release on May the 10th, 2024, being directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. No, okay, was Nowhere Boy from a script by Matt Greenhow. Netflix has published the first photo of Andrew Scott as Tom Ripley in the new TV series Ripley, which is based on the talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith and the subsequent book series. It'll be an eight-episode limited series created by Stephen Zellian, who gave us the night off, and it's going to premiere sometime in 2024. And the, the tease photo, it's a tease but I can't think of better casting for Tom Ripley than Andrew Scott. He's yeah. such a talented actor. Great, great really be books if you ever get a chance to read them as well. Ryan Reynolds has an untitled film which he's going to work with Netflix on. Netflix won the rights to it. It's a heist comedy vehicle that will star Reynolds. Dana Fox is going to write the script and Simon Kinberg is producing alongside Reynolds. And the project is described as being an ensemble vehicle in the spirit of the Oceans films. Okay. One, Ryan Reynolds, that gives a thumbs up. Heist movies, that gets a thumbs up. Mm, Simon Kinberg. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
that's that's the only bit that makes me go uh. and fans of Kirby enthusiasm would have got excited this week but also also felt a bit of sorrow as we got the announcements that the 12th season is on its way but it'll be the final one Larry David himself confirmed it's going to be the final one in his words and his perfect words as Kirby comes to an end I will now have the opportunity to finally shed this Larry David persona and become the person God intended me to be. The thoughtful, kind, caring, considerate human being I was until I got derailed by portraying this malignant character. And so, <laughs> Larry David, I bid you farewell. Your misanthropy will not be missed. And for those of you who would like to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Doctors Without Borders. <laughs> and that is just so Larry David. <laughs> there has been some major trailer drops this week. Almost like a little precursor to Christmas, really. Beverly Hills Cop Axel F trailer brings Eddie Murphy's iconic character to Netflix. And interestingly enough, if you to work for the Detroit Police Department, you would have retired at the age of 50. Eddie Murphy's 62. <laughs> He's still breaking the rules. And it's not a bad trailer. As far as T's trailers go, we don't get to see a lot, but we get enough glimpses to get a feeling that this could be a solid return of Murphy as Axel Foley. We see a quick glimpse of Judge Reinhold and John Aston reprising their roles as Rosewood and Taggart. And we get brief glimpses of newcomer to the franchise, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. So I'm hopeful. I was so adamant that this film was going to be an unnecessary sequel. But after seeing that tease, I'm like, you know what? I think I'm on board with this. John Krasansky's new film, If, uh, trailer landed this week with Ryan Reynolds helping imaginary friends reconnect with kids. Yeah, Ryan Reynolds being an adult who can see imaginary friends that have been abandoned. And it looks like a real charming film. It looks quite good. I was smiling through the trailer, not just because Ryan Reynolds was on screen, but because it just looks like a charming little film about abandoned invisible creatures. After last week's tease of the poster, we got the full trailer for Civil War this week. We did indeed. The new film from Alex Garland. We now get a bit more of an idea of what it's about. Texas and California appear to have broken away from the rest of the states and are now at war with the rest of the US, which is now a fractured country for some political reasons that there's things going on. Let's be honest. This is a not-too-distant-future analogy of what could have happened over the past couple of years, isn't it? And potentially could still happen. Yes. And we also got, and this trailer has been a huge success, which shows that there's still interest in a 15-year-old animated franchise, Kung Fu Panda 4. Yeah, and it looked quite pleasing. Yeah, it's building on what we know from those characters before. It's bringing back some old faces. It's bringing in more mythology and just more fun. It managed to rack up 145 million views in the oh, first wow. couple of days on various channels, and it's topped the YouTube trending from day one onwards. That's the news for this week. But before we go, and this was a this was a real shock, passing age 61 of Andre Brewer. Now, Andre Brewer is one of those screen presents that well, you just couldn't miss because everything he did, he brought so much charm to the role, even playing villains. You'll know him from films such as Primal Fear, uh, Spike Lee's Get on the Bus, City of Angels, A Stunning Turn in the Mist. It's on TV where he really shone, particularly in Homicide Life on the Street, which was a fantastic series, and most recently playing Captain Raymond Holt, this time for laughs, in the hugely successful sitcom Brooklyn Nine-Nine. That was inspired casting, putting Andre Brower in that role. He's such a presence of seriousness within that comedy environment that it, it worked well for the last you always have to have someone who's the straight man and he was the straight man up until like the, 
second season when you started to see some of the humor getting used with the character and getting the warmth of the character, which is underneath this shell of exterior, like I'm in charge menace. Brooklyn Nine-Nine is an absolute joy of a series. And a lot of people will recognize him primarily from that. But like you say, Homicide Life on the Streets really made his name in the mid-90s. Throughout the years, I mean, in films such as Primal Fear, The Mist, Frequency, Poseidon, Salt, Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, Striking Distance, The Gambler, City of Angels. He's been everywhere. He's been a great character actor who's popped up left, right and center. And on TV as well. Uh, do you remember the very short-lived Last Resort series? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. Yeah, Ray was in that. One of, one of those shows that just didn't get its chance to find its audience and, like, you know, work through. And he was absolutely brilliant in it. He's also been in Law & Order Special Victims Unit, Thief. He voiced characters in Bojack Horseman. He's also been in The Andromeda Strain. Most people, like I say, recognise him more recently from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But then you spot him in older shows whenever you go back to rewatch stuff and go, I didn't realise he was in this. It was a great presence. He leaves behind his wife, actress Amy Brabson, and sons Michael, Isaiah, and John Wesley, as well as his brother Charles Jennings and his mother Sally Brower. Um, 61 is no age to leave us, and it's a real sad loss to uh, to all audiences of all ages. Even my daughter, who's been heavily into Brooklyn Nine-Nine and watches them on repeat, she commented like Sergeant Holt passed away. And that just shows that he's managed to capture the hearts of every generation. And that, folks, that's the news. So Merry Christmas from all of us at the Film File. Well, it's just me and Andy. And if you want to make Andy and I very happy, all we ask is that you help promote the Film File into 2024 and beyond. And all you have to do, and if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show. Head over to your favourite podcast platform, hit that subscription button, and please leave a review and a like, because stuff like that really helps us and it really helps push the show forward. And drop us a line into the new year. Let us know what have been your favourite films. can do that by heading on over to social media channels. Follow us. Film File UK is all you want to be looking for. Or you can email us your best films of this year, podcast at filmfile.uk. Just get in touch with us. We love to hear anything you've got to say about films. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. And in keeping with our festive themes, let's take you back to 1984 and follow the life of a boy who inadvertently breaks three important rules. No water, no food after midnight, and no bright light. Because you're going to get gremlins. What is it? It's your new pet. <laughs> Number one, you got to keep him out of bright light. <laughs> Number two, keep him away from water. It's incredible. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. What are these things? Gremlins. How come a cute little guy like this can turn into a thousand ugly monsters? (laughs) That was Mrs. Deagle. I'll bet every kid in America would like to have one. They might even replace the dog as the family pet.
Yes, Gremlins came out in 1984, directed by the much underrated Joe Dante, written by Chris Columbus. The film starred Zach Galligan, Pete Gates, Hoyt Axton, uh, and appearances from many of the regulars that you get to see in all Joe Dante's film. And the voice of Howie Mandel, who provided the voice of Gizmo, the Mogwai. This film is Joe Dante at his devilishly best. This is a film that many argue, is it a Christmas film? I'm going to go with yes. Snowy Town, small creatures destroying a cinema. Buying a pet for presents. Absolutely. A, a sad story about Father Christmas. This film's got it all. I love Gremlins. I went to see this when it came out. The entire theatre was in hysterics and was with the film every step of the way. It's become a perennial favourite. And you know what? It's one of those those films, despite the 80s settings, which has really, really stood the test of time. The effects work is still brilliant. Creature designs mm. are iconic. I don't have a bad word to say about Gremlins, Andy. I have to agree. I didn't see this when it first came out at the cinemas because I was too young. I was only 11 when this got released. And in the UK, it got a 15 rating slapped on it. Oh, did it? Because it was considered closer to horror. In the US, it got a lower rating of a PG. And it was responsible for the PG-13 rating later being introduced because complaints came about this film, about the level of terror and violence in what was thought of as a family film. Parents were taking six-year-olds to go and see it and being quite shocked and distressed by it. It changed the rating system. In the UK, it stayed as a 15 right up until 2012 when it finally got reissued at the cinema with a 12A rating. So on home release, it was still a 15. Back in 1984, I was too young to see it. So I clamoured for this as soon as it came out. As soon as this was on the shelf at my local video rental store, I insisted that my mum rents it. And when we got it home and watched it, oh boy, isn't it just marvellous? It's just dark, comedy, horror, chaotic fun from start to finish. If there's ever a signature style for Joe Dante, then this film is it. The idea was conceived back in the 1920s when there were mechanical failures in RAF aircraft, mm -hmm. which were jokingly blamed on small monsters. The term... Gremlins entered popular culture as children's author and RAF pilot Roald Dahl published a book called The Gremlins in 1943. Walt Disney considered making a film of it. There was a Bugs Bunny cartoon from that era called Falling Hair, which saw him battling a gremlin on an aeroplane. There was a Dan O'Bannon story in the heavy metal movie, which was all about gremlins. Uh, Joe Dante had read The Gremlins and said the book was some of the influence for the film. Like you said, this is a perennial festive favourite. It's so to do with Christmas because it's all about the perils of buying a pet as a present and what can go wrong. Think about this, should never give present the presence of live animals. And this plays on that idea because Billy Peltzer's dad, looking for that perfect present for his kid, brings him a mogwai. A mogwai that has a th three strict rules. Don't feed him after midnight, don't get him wet, and don't expose him to direct sunlight. And all those rules get broken to disastrous effects, resulting in devilish gremlins going around and causing chaos and carnage. This was originally planned to be a lot darker and a lot closer to horror. There's various changes that were made to the script during pre-production. Once Dante came on board, he asked for various revisions to get done to the script. He wanted the satire in there. He wanted to have a, a feeling of hope in there. And he didn't want it to go completely down the bleakest routes. Some changes included the int introduction of Stripe as the head bad gremlin, because initially Gizmo himself was supposed to turn bad. Billy's mother was supposed to have been getting killed in the film, and the dog was supposed to get eaten by gremlins. All far too dark. Dante was like, rein it back a bit, 
this can be something different. Um, Kate's story of why she hates Christmas was also felt by the studio to be dark, but that's one that Joe Dante fought to keep in, and Spielberg allowed him to keep it in the film, as it, he said it was Dante's vision. It's interesting to say that Spielberg was like basically championing this film, because as producer, Spielberg's production credits around that time always had that feel of Spielberg. The Goonies feels like a Spielberg yeah, film. Back to the Future. Poltergeist, we've spoken about on the show, that felt more Spielberg as a result of his involvement. But with this, it doesn't feel like it. It feels like a Joe Dante vision from start to finish, full of absolute satirical chaotic energy. And he gets the best out of his cast. Zach Gallagher and Phoebe Cates as Billy and Kate are just so likeable. Yeah, really good chemistry. Yeah, they work together so well. And even on support roles, Corey Feldman as uh, Pete is fun to watch. And Dick Miller in his turn as Murray makes an impact, even though he's only in a few scenes. Such an impact that he reprised his role to comedy effect in the sequel. Uh, but like you said, the puppets and the designs of the creatures, from the Mogwais through to the Gremlins themselves, that's what really stands up well. And re-watching this this week, and I was expecting to kind of cringe at some of the effects, but even the scene when they're marching through the snow, uh, the whole horde of Gremlins, which is done stop motion, it looks great in the way that CGI from 10 years ago wouldn't. Yeah, no, I totally agree. There's a unique look to the Gremlins. I mean, Mogwai, Gizmo, it's, it's so cute, so lovable. And one of the clever decisions that were made by Dante and the effects crew is to give each of the gremlins a distinct personality. You've got Stripe, yeah. you've got crazy serial killer version, you've got uh, the lovelorn uh, drunkard in the bar. <laughs> each of them have this unique personality, and that helps give, give an extra dimension to the film. It's as simple as that. All the gremlins themselves have personality. Even if they don't do much, they all have individual personality. And there's joyous fun to be had in seeing these monsters causing chaos. You, you find yourself cheering at some of the things that they do, even though it's quite sinister. The neighbour from hell who ends up getting rocketed out of her house on her chairlift that has gone wrong by her gremlins. And you're kind of cheering because the gremlins have just kind of killed off someone who wasn't a nice character. You shouldn't be cheering for that, but you do. And that's what Dante does well. He makes you find joy in things that are really not joyous. Uh, the film was a huge success, produced on an $11 million budget, which by these standards today, that would be about the cost of catering. It was more expensive than Spielberg had originally intended for the film, but still relatively cheap. The trailer introduced the film to the audience by briefly explaining that Billy receives a strange creature as a Christmas gift uh, by going over the three rules. And the trailer showed little either uh, of the Mogwai or the Gremlins, but the film landed big. Opened opposite Ivan Reitman's Ghostbusters, Gremlins ranked second with a 12.5 million in its first weekend and went on to become not quite the iconic film that Ghostbusters was, but one of the hits of that year. Two iconic things from this film, though, which everyone instantly recognises. The first, that score by Jerry Goldsmith. Yes, we were singing it just as we went into the uh, into the segment. As soon as you hear, dun, 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 you know where it's going and you remember Gremlins and it just draws you in. It's a great score. It captures the energy and it captures, it's kind of like a fun, mischievous menace is embedded within the score. And also the studio backlot was used for the depiction of Kingston Falls, what was originally known as Courthouse Square which is a set that is familiar to anyone who pays attention in movies since 1948. It's been used in an act of murder to kill a mockingbird, tarantula, 
Psycho 2, and much, much more, including TV productions. But this film made that central square almost a character. It was a beautiful setting, so much so that the following year, when it popped up again in Back to the Future, people instantly went, that's the same place as Gremlins? Because it's it, it's that courthouse has become so iconic in Hollywood cinema ever since. An iconic set that has been burnt down and rebuilt so many times through the decades. It's part of the charm is that Kingston Falls feels like a proper town because of that set. Kingston Falls itself was then brought back in art sketch form for a few side jokes in the sequel, Gremlins 2. And a lot of things came back for Gremlins 2, including one of the critics... Out of the legion of critics who loved the film, there was one critic who notoriously hated the film so much, criticising it for being icky and gross in a scathing review on TV. And that's Leonard Maltin, who popped up in Gremlins 2, criticising the film again to get attacked by Gremlins. And that was a perfect bit of throwback humour for that second film, because you can't talk about Gremlins without talking about the sequel that followed. When Gremlins 2, the new batch came out in 1990, rather than just be a a straight sequel, Joe Dante and screenwriter Charles S. Hart went full on meta with it, to the point where there's a sequence in the film that is the Gremlins and you watching a film and it looks like the projector goes down. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a unique take. I know people who love it. I know people who hate it. But I tell you what, you can't ignore it. No. Uh, Joe Dante himself turned down the initial offer to make a sequel. He couldn't see an in. He didn't see a point for it because Gremlins itself was a self-contained film. The studio were insisting on going ahead with it and struggled to find someone else to be able to pick it up before they eventually went back to him and said, look, can you have a look at this and see if you can do anything? And he he said to them, if I get full creative control and I have final edit, then yes. They made the ridiculous decision to say yes to that. And he basically delivered a film that made sure that they would never be able to do another sequel to Gremlins again because he mocked everything about Gremlins. Gremlins 2, the new batch, became a satire of the original film. It mocks the three rules that make no sense when you think about them. Don't feed them after midnight. There's a whole sequence in the second film where all those rules are getting broken down. It's like, well, what if you cross a time zone? It's always midnight somewhere in the world. Every rule is ridiculous. It even mocks like the don't get them in touch with water, which if you look at the original gremlins, when they're marching through the snow, isn't snow water? Should they not be reproducing? (laughs) Gremlins 2 basically went, all the things that people could criticize about this film, let's just play with that and have fun with it. And it went over the top. It broke the fourth wall. It ramped up everything to silly levels. Uh, Like you say, there was the burnout at the midpoint of the film, which I remember seeing that on the big screen when it came out because I was old enough to see Remnants 2 when that came out. And then on the VCR version, when it came out, it was like the tape was getting chewed kind of effect. Before oh, that's the right. Yeah, yeah, of course. And they had John Wayne in that one, whereas the cinema one was um, Hulk Hogan ripping off his shirt and like threatening the gremlins up in the projector booth to get the film back on, like saying to the audience, sorry for the interruption, folks. And then it goes back to the film. It also threw in on the sequel, the late, great Christopher Lee in a perfect role as a sinister scientist who's been experimenting with things that creates a multitude of different gremlins. The second film I've got a lot of love for because I can see that Dante was just going, you know what? I'm going to have fun here. And he just goes wild. He goes wild. He throws everything at the wall and most of it sticks really well. 
and he's mocking the film that he made in the first place. It's great. I love both these films. Gremlins is a perfect Christmas film. It's I, I totally agree. It's chilling. It's funny. It's chaotic. And Gremlins 2 is the perfect complement to it for me because it just has fun. I, I totally agree with everything you've said. I, I have so much love for this film. I see something new in it every time I watch it. I love the combination of comedy and horror. Uh, yeah. We talked about having snow on a film. The wintry setting helps make it a little bit more creepy. It's a perfect movie. It's got the singular vision of Joe Dante, a, a witty script by Chris Columbus. This was his first piece of work. Uh, yeah. It has enough magic from Spielberg when he was at his height of, of being a great producer, let alone director. You can't match it. There has never been anything like it. There have been sort of rip-offs galore, ghoulies, trolls, hobgoblins, uh, the munches. None of those can shine a bright light on Gremlins. A third film has been touted over the last decade. Chris Columbus has apparently been trying to find the right approach throughout the past decade, but hasn't quite tapped it. And on his last update in 2020, he confirmed that if they do go ahead with the third film, puppets would still be used and CGI would be avoided. Whether anything ever happens for that third film remains to be seen. Like I said, Gremlins 2, the new batch, pretty much made sure that you can't really take a Gremlins film seriously going forwards, and it's basically broke the franchise at that point. If you want to watch Gremlins, Andy, where can you find it? Gremlins and Gremlins 2 are both on Sky Movies at this point in time. Well worth watching. Even if you've seen them hundreds of times, get them watched again, because I've watched these films both so many times over the decades. And when I rewatched Gremlins this week, I went straight on to the new batch and I had a good time that night watching both films back to back. We'll be back very soon with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. So we're going to start our reviews with a film that Andy and I have both seen, and that is Godzilla Minus One. Directed by Takashi Yamazaki, this sets Godzilla against a post-war Japan still recovering from the effects of the atomic bomb with the people left behind. In particular, Koichi Shikoshima, who was supposed to fly a kamikaze mission but overcome by fear and an understandable desire to to survive, lands on Odo Island, a a deep cut from Godzilla lore, I believe, Andy, Mm. to fix a made-up engine failure. But comes face to face with Godzilla, a monster familiar to the locals who attacks and kills nearly everyone on the island. And once again, fear stops our protagonist from fighting back. Shikishima returns to Tokyo, burned and destroyed to smithereens by the Allied firebombing to find his parents dead, his home, nothing more than a pile of wood. Nevertheless, he builds a makeshift family of sorts with a young woman who's lost everything and a baby, Akiko. Everything looks to be working out wonderfully until a now irradiated Godzilla is making his way to Tokyo. Andy, what did you think? This was an amazing Godzilla film because you said that like the Odo Island is a deep cut. Yeah, the 1954 film started off with a freighter destroyed near Odo Island where Godzilla first arose. And this is basically going back to just before then. And it's the introduction of Godzilla. And it's a return to Godzilla being used kind of like a metaphor of something else that's going on. The lead character, Koichi, he's landed when he's supposed to be on a kamikaze mission. And so he's got survivor guilt 
And that's when Godzilla rises up and destroys Odo Island. And then just as he's getting into his normal life in Tokyo, he starts to feel guilty about getting his life on track and getting things back. And that's when Godzilla arrives. And Godzilla is being used as an analogy for his survivor guilt and his post-traumatic stress. Yes, it could just be coincidental, but this is what makes great Godzilla movies because the original one being the analogy of the bomb, Godzilla was used as an analogy for like the US might of weaponry against Japan and the terror that it inflicts. This time it's being used on a more personal level that it's almost like it's a representation of his own survivor guilt proving that he should have died then. And until he can overcome his own fear, that creature will still rise up and still destroy all the things that he loves around him. And that, for me, is what made it so great. The human element was so engrossing. You couldn't help but feel for every one of the characters that are involved. And the monster smashing is absolutely perfect. This is a 14 million budgeted film that looks better than any of the over 100 million US blockbusters that have been released this year. On a fraction of the budget, it looks stunning. The decimation is absolutely jaw-dropping, thrilling, terrifying, but it's the human elements, and that's what you need in a good Godzilla movie. I'm not knocking the mid-phase of the Godzilla franchises through the like 60s and 70s, where it was men in rubber suits fighting each other in ridiculous ways, because they were fun. But a good Godzilla movie, like the 1954 version, like this one, and like Shin Godzilla, always have that human approach. It's always about humans caught up in this. And that's what the US versions have kind of done at the start of it, even though it's looking like it's becoming more like a monster smackdown now. It was focusing on the human side. This is Godzilla, perfectly done on the screen. I'm close to thinking that it's possibly going to be my favourite Godzilla movie to date. What, what, what's always worked best with Godzilla when it is that uh, analogy of, of something contextual? So Shin Godzilla said something about, you know, modern day Japan and the rigours and problems of uh, institutions and international mm-hmm. relations. This tellingly provides private citizens, not the government, pulling together voluntary uh, to pull knowledge and form some kind of an effective way of stopping Godzilla from uh, approaching Tokyo. And I also thought this is not the lovely, cuddly version of Godzilla that we've seen recently. This is a a monster that is incomprehensible, motivated purely by hunger, and and maybe even a desire for revenge after the Bikini Atoll scene. This is a kind of a legacy version of Godzilla. This is a a force of nature that is a destroyer of worlds, which plays into almost Oppenheimer territory with Mm. with the analogy back to the atomic bomb. It's a stunning film to watch. Like I've already said, the the visuals are amazing on such a low budget. You would believe that more money had been spent on this than most of the outings that we've seen on the big screen this year. But the sound mix as well is just perfectly worked out. There's moments where the the sound diminishes to almost nothing. And it's a couple of moments, complete silence before, boom, it kicks back in. And it's complemented by a score that more than delivers by Naoki Sato, which I I was humming as I was leaving the theatre because it was just such a great booming score, which also had currents of like emotion and depth on the human scenes. I walked out of this instantly thinking that I've possibly seen one of my favourite films of this year, if not my favourite film of this year. Excellent. So we're both in uh, in Sympathico on this one. There's a tease at the end that could be a sequel. The director of it has said that that wasn't really intended to be sequel bait that he's put at the end. It was more that he wanted there to always be, you know, finishing a movie with some hint 
of skepticism as to whether everything's okay. But I would happily, happily sit through another Godzilla film. And given the fact that this film, this film has been more than performing worldwide and raking in money in international territories that it's never seen from a Godzilla franchise from Japan, I think there's a very good chance that we might see a return to this Godzilla. Whether it's going to be with the same characters, I don't know. I think it'd be good to jump ahead a couple of decades and maybe tell another human story with the monster at the backdrop, because that's Godzilla for me. Godzilla is human stories with monster in the backdrops. A film that you've seen that I enjoyed the first part highly, I hope you're not going to disappoint me by telling me the sequel is a letdown, because you're going to be telling me now about The Three Musketeers and Milady, the follow-up to Three Musketeers and D'Artagnan that was released earlier this year. Alexander Dumas' masterpiece <laughs> continues exclusively in cinemas. <laughs> the Three Musketeers, Milady, in cinemas now. This second part of the tale provides a very brief recap of events from the first film, D'Artagnan, before picking up the story as D'Artagnan himself seeks to find out where Constance has been taken to, which will force him to unite with the mysterious Milady de Winter. The other musketeers also have their own stories to follow as the political machinations of Cardinal Richelieu continue to threaten the stability of France under the reign of Louis XIII. This is pretty much as you would expect for a second part of one story, with all the cast on fine form once again in the roles that have been portrayed many times by many different faces over the decades. And if you are as much of a fan of the first part as I was, then suffice to say, you're going to be equally pleased with this outing. The first film focused more on D'Artagnan, after all, it was his story and the film title reflected that. And whilst he still dominates the central story here, with Francois Civil charming again in the role, there is more screen time and story given to Milady, played by Eva Green, this time round, as she confronts her own broken past and questions about her loyalties are raised. In this outing, the much-publicised fifth musketeer Hannibal, played by Ralph Amusu, enters the fray. And if I was to be completely honest, it does feel a tad shoehorned in somewhat leaving me feeling that maybe we could have been introduced to his character in the first film for it to then pick up with him in the latter end of this one. The character's not a bad insertion decision, and it's actually drawn from a real historical character. It just feels a little clumsily woven into the narrative that kind of diminishes the character overall. Still, with the sumptuous production design, wonderfully choreographed action moments, and such a fine cast throughout, this small niggle doesn't rock the boat too much. And it makes this wrap-up of the tale play perfectly for fans of the Musketeers in general. There's a suggestion in the final moments of how a third film could pick things up and continue telling swashbuckling tales of the Musketeers. And if you ever get that made, I'd certainly be on board with spending more time in such great company. In the meantime, if you enjoyed part one, this is essential viewing. And finally, for this week, you have beat me to the punch by seeing the latest from Ardman. And that's Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, that landed on Netflix this weekend. Last time we broke out of a chicken farm. Well, this time... We're breaking in. It's an impossible mission. Only the small matter of this electric fence. The camera-driven gun-toting moles. And the laser-guided exploding ducks. Huh? That place 
is impenetrable. Yeah, and you can't get in neither. Can you believe it's been 23 years since the first Chicken Run film was released? After the events of that earlier film, Ginger and Rocky led the escaped chickens to what is now an idyllic island bird sanctuary. Living in harmony there, Rocky and Ginger have hatched a child called Molly, who's now entering a rebellious teenage phase. Molly is starting to wonder what life outside the community is like, and when she spies a truck on the neighbouring shore, which has a depiction of a happy chicken sat in a bucket, she decides she wants to get a bucket of her own and be happy. Sneaking over the water to follow her dreams, she finds that the truck is from Funland Farms, which turns out to be a food processing plant which is preparing to release their new brand of chicken nuggets to the world. And Molly finds herself trapped in the sinister factory, leading Ginger, Rocky and a few others to risk all to save her and the other chickens that are trapped there. As far as belated sequels go, this was pretty underwhelming. Whilst at the start it looked like it could have a different approach than the first film and thus feel like it has a reason to exist, it swiftly becomes pretty much more of the same as we once more have to break chickens free from a food processing facility. The replaced voice cast for the leads fail to replicate the charm of the original. Ginger is now voiced by Tandy Newton, whilst Rocky is Zachary Levi, and neither get close to the personalities of Sawala and Gibson, who provided the voices in the first film. And it does make me wonder why they even included those characters at all, when they could have just simply created new ones for a new Chicken Run story. Anyway, the returning cast in their support roles are okay, but they're kind of underused, as the focus in this film is more on Molly, voiced by Bella Ramsey, and Frizzle, voiced by Josie Segrick Davis. But Molly and Frizzle both become tiresome very swiftly after they were individually introduced, and by the midpoint of the film, I found I was becoming more and more disinterested in how it plays out, as the film was just simply ticking off the boxes of nostalgia-berry references to the first film. On the plus side, the animation is, as you would expect from Ardman, stunning. And the detail and care put into the models is glorious. This is a great-looking stop-motion animation, and some of the more thrilling set pieces are absolute works of art. But overall, the film feels a little flat, and maybe it's the absence of Peter Lord and Nick Park that diminished it somewhat. Not even on board as producers for this one, there's a notable absence in their style of Ardman anarchy. And director Sam Fell kind of demonstrates that when he's worked on films such as Flushed Away, Tale of Despero and Paranorman, it was possibly his co-directors on those three films that brought the magic. Dawn of the Nuggets will please younger audiences and it will still raise some smiles from long-time fans of the first film, but it's clearly a film that is suffering from the law of diminishing returns. All right, well, I'm about to watch it, so I'll let you know later. That's the reviews for this week, but what have we got coming up over the next week? in time for Christmas. So at cinemas, there's a small release called Sweet Sue, but all the eyes are going to be on the box office this weekend for Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Will any eyes be on the screen? That's another matter altogether. Now TV and Sky. Oh, they've got a treat for you for, for over the Christmas period here. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse lands on Now TV okay. and Sky. Silent Night, which is the John Woo action festive film that we spoke yep, about the trailer of a few months ago. And the Super Mario Brothers movie also lands on Christmas Day. Missed that, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. It's quite a good Christmas from Sky. Yeah, we've got the Doctor Who special on Christmas Day. Can't we have. For. So that, we'll be tuning into BBC on Christmas Day for that. Over on Netflix, I reviewed it last week. Maestro lands on Netflix this week. And also, we've mentioned it a few times over the, over the past few months, Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon Part 1 lands on Netflix this week, which, uh, once we've seen it, we will bring a review to you in one way, shape or form. Over on Disney+, Plus, Percy Jackson and the Olympians Season 1 lands, and we're very excited for this. What if 
season two. New episode drops every day, starting from the 22nd, right the way through Christmas. We'll be there for that. Quite a good week. It is. There's your Christmas present, folks. Wrapped and delivered straight to you. And that, folks, well, that's us for this year. Andy and I are going to pop back with a couple of reviews, but it's been a heck of a year. Uh, So much so that we're going to tell you our neat things before we go. So, Andy, go first. What's your neat thing? My neat thing, as I said, I've had a week off. And normally in my week off, I just watch loads of TV shows and films and I don't really do much. This week, yeah, pretty much the same. But I also spent quite a significant amount of time playing a game that landed on PlayStation Plus recently called Power Wash Simulator. Never What's Power Wash Simulator? I hear you ask. I did. It's a game in which you are going around with a power wash system and cleaning things like vehicles, bikes, garages, buildings, theme parks, etc. You are literally just going around, hosing things down and getting rid of the dirt. And it sounds like the most ridiculous concept of a game ever. It sounds, what on earth's that? And I thought that until I thought, I'll give it a shot and found myself absolutely loving it. I have done levels where I've jumped on thinking, I'll give this a shot. Um, I'll I'll only jump on for half an hour. And then four hours later, I've cleaned this treehouse and I'm so proud of what I've done. What's good about this game is this is so relaxing. There's something, it's the same as like if you mop your kitchen floor. I, I don't know about you, but when I whenever I mop, I feel proud of the job that I've done at the end. And that's the same kind of satisfaction you get playing Power power Wash Simulator. You're going around just cleaning dirt off things. And you have to change your nozzle types and you can get soaps and all that for different kind of like metals, glass, etc. to help clean them better. You have to get graffiti off skate parks and things like that. You have to sometimes do a more powerful jet. Sometimes you can do the wider jet so you can clean things in one go. Sounds ridiculous, but until you've tried it, you will never understand the absolute pleasure of almost zen-like meditative mindset that you get from this. Normally on my weeks off, the weeks go by too fast. And I still feel a bit of like work anxiety when I'm going back. And I feel like, oh, I could have done with a few more days to de-stress. But playing this over my week off, and I went back to work today feeling like I'd actually de-stressed myself completely because I have just been playing a game that is so relaxing, so enjoyable. It's it's not, you know, you've not got things firing at you all the time. You're just simply cleaning things. And it's beautiful. Andy, we, we have a jet wash at our house. So if you ever want to come around uh, uh, and jet oh. wash the drive, <laughs> you know, feel free. I'm there tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, a, this is a game that I laughed off and thought, oh, this is just going to be a five-minute bit of playing and then I'll give up. And I am still going back to it. There's expansion packs that you can buy for it. There's a Back to the Future expansion pack where you're cleaning down some of the sets. You get the Tomb Raider pack with it, so you can clean Croft's Manor and various Tomb Raider artifacts. More areas to go through. So once you've completed the main game, you can just go, I'm now going to go and clean some more things, and I'll be happy to keep cleaning on that game for the rest of my life. (laughs) I'm going to stay in a festive mode. Uh, I'm going to give you a perennial favourite, one I've had since being a small boy. It was the first TV special based on the comic strip Peanuts by Charles M. Schultz, and it is A Charlie Brown Christmas. Came out in 1965. I cannot tell you how many times I have seen this. Charlie Brown, as we know, is the forever done-upon kid. The every kid who doubts himself, doubts the world around him, and doubts his place in the universe. And he complains about the overwhelming materialism that he sees amongst everyone 
on the build-up to Christmas. It's suggested by Lucy that he becomes director of the school Christmas play. Charlie Brown accepts, proves to be ever so frustrating, but he makes an attempt to restore the proper spirit of Christmas with a forlorn little Christmas tree. What's not to love about this short 20-odd minute film? It's a true Christmas classic. I can't think of a Christmas passing without at least once watching this short film. It's one of the few Christmas specials that actually does discuss the true meaning of Christmas. Um, The animation is basic, but that doesn't matter. Primitive compared to 2023 standard, but I don't care because it is infused with love and I can watch it Mm. time and time again. Uh, It's beautifully done. It's beautifully rendered. It's got a fantastic jazz score by the Vince Guaraldi Trio. The music's so good that it wound its way into the Royal Tenenbaums film and is unforgettable. Watch it as a family and you will fall in love with this and you will come back to it every single year. I love it. I always will. And I'll watch it every Christmas. My neat thing, a Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, And that, folks, well, that's us done. We're out of here. Time to um, wrap the last of the presents. Put the stocking up and, uh, and wait for the big day. Andy, made your plans for Christmas, or is it just uh, going to be home based? It's home based. Uh, we've got our we've got Christmas turkey this year. I've ordered a turkey that is far too big. I took advantage of a deal to get one, and it turned up. It's like that will just about fit in the freezer, and now I'm having to measure up the oven to make sure it's going to fit in there. There's going to be enough to feed the five thousand, but you know <laughs> what? Can't wait. It's so big a turkey. We're going to have to take it out two and a half days early in order to make sure it's defrosted. <laughs> Can't wait. I love cooking Christmas dinner. I love a good Christmas dinner. Um, but aside from that, we're just you know just basically going to chill. We're taking a break almost from the show for a couple of weeks. Yeah, we will fill the gaps potentially with Potentially drop in, aren't we, at this stage? No no promises yeah. yet, but we, we plan to. Anything that we drop in won't be numbered episodes, so we'll probably just do a stocking filler and then a New Year special before we return in the new year. With hey, our, I like that, the idea of stocking filler. With our review of 2023 will be the first show that we come back with. So even that might not be a numbered episode because if we're reviewing the whole of the year, it might just be a special bonus episode with us talking about the best films of the year. So we'd like some input from you guys out there. What are your favourite films of the year? We'll post it out on the socials as a question over the Christmas period to get some answers back. And I'm going to put the feelers out with people from work as well to get some ideas from how people who work with film like in the cinema industry feel about the films that came out this year. Um, so that means that our 200th episode is just that little bit further away than what it was. We will hopefully bring you some reviews of some of the films that open over this festive period where and when we can, even if it's just small little shows with either me or Lee or possibly the both of us just talking about Aquaman or Ferrari because they're the films that are going to hit. Okay, well, that's us done. Have a very Merry Christmas. Look after yourselves out there in the real world. Andy, always a pleasure. Merry Christmas, mate. Merry Christmas to you. You say you hate Washington's birthday or Thanksgiving, nobody cares. But you say you hate Christmas, and people treat you like a leper. Three, two, one. This is No Barrios. No Barrios? Barrios. <laughs> We've got to Mexico. <laughs> The cartel will be after us next. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The Barrios. And what do we have for you? Let's try that again with that mouthful of... Hang on. <laughs> chew, chew. Spit, chew. don't swallow. However, but... Start again. Sorry, Andy. I'm not drunk on this. I'm just okay. brains off. <laughs> Such as, like, Giant Freaking Robot this week had an exclusive scoop on they're going to make a Baldur's Gate 3 film. 
they're going to adapt that game to film. Yeah, isn't that just a Dungeons and Dragons movie? Because that's <laughs> what Baldur's Gate is. It's Dungeons and Dragons. They're not going to make a Baldur's Gate 3 movie because your general audience who don't play the game will think they've missed parts one and two. So they'll end up just calling it Baldur's Gate. And then they'll go, well, that means nothing. So they'll just call it Dungeons and Dragons. We already know that the Dungeons and Dragons movie is still planned for one way, shape or form. That's not a scoop news, giant freaking robot. You're just throwing muck at the wall and seeing what sticks. Anyway, rant out the way. <laughs> <laughs> Stick around and you'll get the runs. Stick around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah that, had to, that had to happen. Stick around. Yeah. yeah. Uh, put the stocking up. Pull your stockings down. <laughs> Pull pants down. <laughs> <laughs> get a spanking for Christmas. <laughs>